It is so good to be back. Uh, the last couple of weeks. Yeah, thank you. The last couple of weeks have been quite an adventure, and I thank you so much. I know John, I speak for John as well. Thank you for your prayers. A week ago right now, both of us were pretty much laid up and out, and there's no explanation as to how we were able to recover so quickly from that and get back to the work God called us to do other than your prayers. So thank you for that. And at the end of our time together today, I'll share a little bit about our trip, but if you would please now take out your Bibles, open them up with me to the book of Acts. We're in chapter 24 today. Acts 24. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, please grab one from under a seat in front of you. We continue to study through now the end of the ministry that's recorded for us in Acts of of the Apostle Paul. We left off last time, Paul, in being transferred from Jerusalem to Caesarea to stand trial for the charges that the religious leaders are bringing against him. We mentioned that he is now before a man named Felix, who is governor of the area, and we take a look now at the trial that takes place. We are in chapter 24 now, beginning in verse 1, it says, After five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and with an attorney named Tertullus, and they brought charges to the governor against Paul. After Paul had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying to the governor, Since we have through you attained much peace, and since by your providence reforms are being carried out for this nation, we acknowledge this in every way and everywhere, most excellent Felix, with all thankfulness. Oh, isn't that just attorney ease or what? Totally bringing all of this flattery to the governor as he's open, in his opening statements. None of it true. None of it. They, he didn't believe a word he was saying. The Jews hated Felix. Felix hated the Jews. He persecuted them. I mean, it was just this horrible relationship. He's, he's there for one purpose and one purpose only, to keep peace. And we'll learn a little, talk a little bit more about him later. He knew it that it was just nothing but trying to butter him up. They knew it, but it was just all part of the plan, all part of the process. Verse four, but that I may not worry you any further, or weary you any further, I beg that you grant us by your kindness a brief hearing. For we have found this man a real pest, and a fellow who stirs up dissension among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. And he even tried to desecrate the temple. And then we arrested him. We wanted to judge him according to our own law, but Lysias, the commander, came along and with much violence took him out of our hands, ordering his accusers to come before you. By examining him yourself concerning all these matters, you will be able to ascertain the things of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the attack, asserting that these things were so." Here again, these Jewish leaders, they hire an attorney, they bring this down, they're going to bring these formal charges now against Paul before Felix. And it's interesting, about the only thing that he says that's true in his entire statement is right there in verse 5 at the beginning, we found this man to be a real pest. He is a real pain in our neck. Because of all of the things that he is proclaiming, all of the things that he is saying, he is making our job really hard. The problem is that's not against the law, especially the way Paul was doing it. Paul was simply speaking the truth, 
Paul was simply sharing the gospel. Paul was in no way harming or hurting anyone. As a matter of fact, he's bringing the truth of eternal life to a lost and dying world. And yet the opposition sees that as being a pest. The opposition sees that as, well, you're making our job a whole lot harder. Understanding again who the real enemy behind all of this is. The enemy of our own souls. This is not, again, we remind us ourselves continually, back then as it is today, our battle is not against flesh and blood. Our battle is against spiritual forces of darkness. Make no mistake, spiritual forces of darkness are behind these religious leaders as they are coming against Paul. Lives are being changed. Eternities are being transformed because of the message of the gospel that Paul is proclaiming. And they come against this. The main issue in all of this is Paul, as we've said, and we've studied through this, Paul used to be one of them. Paul used to be a Pharisee. Paul used to be one of the religious leaders. Paul used to be one that was out in the front lines fighting against Christianity, fighting against the gospel. But he had a face-to-face encounter with the Lord Jesus. His life radically changed. And they can't argue with that. They can't argue with the truth and the facts that Paul's life has been changed by Jesus. So what do they do? They bring all these false charges. They bring all these things of sedition and and sectarianism and all of this other kind of stuff to cloud it. And that's not even, the problem is, again, they don't have any evidence of those things. So what do they do? They, they, they even bring out flat-out lies. They said, we arrested him. They didn't arrest him. They were beating him to death without a trial. When Lysias sent soldiers to intervene, all they did was come in and break up the fact that they were beating him to death and carry Paul away. But how do they describe that? Police brutality. With great violence, they came in distorting, twisting the truth because they don't have anything that they can fight against. Paul's life has been changed. They can't argue that. And guys, as we look at this and we, and we even look at this, the more things change, the more things stay the same. The problem that we face as Christians today against the world that is out there, the world that is trying to, again, push out the darkness, that is trying to spread the darkness again because of the spiritual forces behind the evil that is out in the world, their result coming against us is the same because we used to be like them. But our lives have been radically changed. We now have the hope of eternal life that only comes through Jesus Christ. And as we bring that message, the world comes against us and pushes against us and fights against us. Did you ever, I mean, it's, it's so simple when we look at it, that it breaks it right down to that. I mean, let's look, look at Christmas and Easter, just as examples. The world has no problem with Santa and the Easter bunny. They have no problem with Christmas and Easter celebrating at that. Would you bring Jesus into the equation? The real reason for Christmas and Easter, and that's when everything comes apart. That's where all of the problem lies. See, the bottom of the line, again, it comes down to the main issue. There's only one way. We are all accountable to our creator. And there is only one way that we can stand before our creator, blameless and perfect. And that is through the blood of Jesus. Jesus said, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, but men loved the darkness instead of the light. He explained the reason why 
people won't come to him. Why people won't come to the light? Because their evil deeds will be exposed and they don't want that. So again, fighting with deception and distortion. And Well, we see this laid out before that, before Felix in our text. Well, verse 10 tells us, when the governor had nodded for him to speak, Paul responded. So they've had their opening arguments. Now it's time for Paul to respond. Paul speaks here and he says, knowing that for many years you have judged this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. Now here's Paul's opening statement. He just states a fact. You've been a judge for a while. Not trying to butter him up. He's just stating you've been a judge for a while. And because of that, I get to stand before you and notice, key word, cheerfully make my defense. He's looking forward to this. Since you can take note of the fact that no more than 12 days ago, I went up to Jerusalem to worship. He kind of dispenses with this whole idea that he could have started and formulated a riot. 12 days ago, I got to Jerusalem. Half of those days I've spent here in Caesarea. There's no possibility, no way I could have organized a riot, but he, lets, he just kind of leaves that sitting there. Neither in the temple, nor in the synagogue, nor in the city itself did they find me carrying on a discussion with anyone or causing a riot, nor can they prove to you the charges which they've now accused me. But this I admit to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets, having a hope in God which these men cherish themselves, that, they shall certainly, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. In view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience before God and before men. Here we see Paul now making the third of his six defenses that are recorded for us in the book of Acts. We've talked about this, that word defense, the Greek word apologia, where we get our term apologetics from, but let's, again, take it right off the board. It is Paul by no means makes an apology for what he is saying or what he believes. This is making a defense. This is making a statement of why he believes what he believes, why he is doing what it is that he's doing. And in it, again, we see a great example. Notice again first, I drew your attention to this a moment ago, but it says cheerfully. I, Paul in no way feels threatened by this situation and in no way is retaliating with threats. He's looking at this as an opportunity to share the truth. And that's a, that's a challenge for all of us when we are attacked as, as Christians, when that comes against us, instead of fighting back and pushing back in, in retaliation, we need to look at this as an opportunity for us to share the hope that is in us. As Peter tells us, we all need to be ready always ready to make a defense, always make a ready to make that apology, explanation of why we believe, why this hope that we have in us. He, he will later write to Timothy and say this, Paul does, 2 Timothy chapter 2, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome. It's not about fighting, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. And here's the reason why. If perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Guys, it is never about winning an argument. It is always about winning a soul. We, if, if it is ever about us somehow getting at the intellectual one up on somebody. God for, forgive us. It is always about 
the possibility that God might grant repentance. Now, I love this. Again, remember, Paul is standing trial here. And notice what it says in the beginning of verse 14. But this I admit. If he had an attorney, don't admit anything. But again, Paul realizes this is an opportunity. You see, Paul is not worried at all about incriminating himself. He is worried completely about liberating them. That they would receive the truth. That they would understand how they could be freed from the bondage that they're under. He's not worried about the bondage that he is. Again, Paul understands this. He's not a prisoner of Rome. He says, I am a prisoner of and for Jesus Christ. But here he goes. This is my... This is, my, this is what I do confess. This is what I, I do admit. That according to the way, now we've talked of this before, that is what Christians often refer to themselves as, the way. And we can understand why. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. What a great, great way to, to address ourselves. The way. We are on the way. The only way to the Father. Jesus said that is the only way through him. But it's not just the way that, meaning that, it's also the way that we are to conduct our lives. There is a way as Christians that we are to walk this walk that is placed before us. And Paul addresses and and embraces both of those as he continues on from there. Notice he says first, I serve the God of our fathers. Interesting choice of words there for serve because it's translated also worship and other things. And with that, we see the connection between service and worship. There's not a disconnect of those things. Worship is not something that we do before the sermon on Sundays. Worship should be an an expression in our lives. We should worship and serve with every aspect of our lives. Paul uses this same word in Romans chapter 12, When he says, therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual or reasonable service of worship. That phrase translated service of worship is one word, and it's the same word that is used here that he says, I serve the God of our fathers. Worship. Worship, service, that should be a lifestyle for us. It's not something we do, it's who we are. And perhaps you've heard this statement before, but it's something that we always should bring up regularly in our lives. If you are ever accused of being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? And Paul's life lived out this way. If he was on trial for being a Christian, trial over, guilty as charged. Paul was proud to be a Jesus freak, (laughs) sharing the gospel everywhere that he went. I serve, I live, I worship all out the God of our fathers. Notice too also, I believe everything that is in the scriptures. I believe the law, the prophets, I believe it all. Paul was a fundamentalist. He believed every word. He believed and he said, all scripture is God-breathed. Every word of it. Proud to stand on that. Every piece of it. He said, I haven't shrunken away from sharing the entire counsel of God with you. 
all of God's word, every bit of it. It's not up to us to pick and choose the entire counsel of God. And I know this isn't going to be a surprise to most, if any of you, but the word of God is under attack, serious attack, and not just from those who claim there is no God. It's under serious attack from inside the quote unquote church. Most seminaries putting out pastors today question the validity and, and of the word of God as a whole. It is sad. I've, I've heard one of, one of my favorite pastors that I listen to a lot, he, he often refers to seminaries as cemeteries. <laughs> because without the living word of God, it can't produce men and women on fire and alive for God. It can't. Paul makes no bones about it. Guys, and there's nothing Nothing that we need to apologize for as Christians, that we believe every word that's in here. We'll, when, again, when we're out in the world and we're facing those who, who, in their ignorance, say the Bible's full of contradictions, the Bible's full of, of false statements, understand again, it is completely in their ignorance that they say that. Archaeology and science every day continue to prove that every word in here is true. There has never been an archaeological discovery, not one, that proves anything in the Word of God false. And there's never been a scientific discovery that's ever proved the Word of God false. As a matter of fact, again, every day science progresses, makes it harder and harder for them to remain atheists. I believe, I believe the Word of God. And he says, I have a living hope. When he describes why he has this hope, it is because of the resurrection. It is because Jesus suffered and died and rose again that I can have this hope, that I can know that my sins are forgiven, that I can know that I too will be raised again on that day and have eternal life. And I have this hope in this, the resurrection. And because of that, he says, in view of all of this, I do my best everywhere, always to have a clean conscience before men and before God. I live this way. This is my life. And I, I love this as he's, again, standing before them. He's saying, if I'm on trial for this, go ahead and lock me up. I'm guilty of all of this. But that's, that wasn't the problem. Again, the real issue, the real issue behind all of those things. There was nothing against the law with what Paul was doing in that. Well, he does continue in verse 17. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. So he does go back now and kind of describe, this is what I was doing. I've been gone a while, came back to present alms in which they found me occupied in the temple. That's why I was there. I wasn't there to cause a riot. I wasn't there to cause problems. I was there to bring an offering. Having been purified without any crowd or uproar, but there came some Jews from Asia who ought to have been here present before you to make the accusations if they should have anything against me, or else let these men themselves tell what misdeed they found when I stood before the council, other than for this statement, which I shouted out while standing among them, for the resurrection of the dead, I am on trial before you today. Paul referring back to when he was in Jerusalem, standing before Lysias, and they brought the trial. We looked at that last time. 
And Paul said, I believe in the resurrection. Well, then the Pharisees, who also believe in the resurrection, and the Sadducees, who don't, they got into a fight. Paul's saying, it wasn't me that started anything. I just, I just said something. They got into a fight then. Verse 22, but Felix, having a more exact knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, when Lysias, the commander, comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion for him to keep in custody and yet to keep him in custody and yet to have some freedom, not to prevent any of his friends from ministering to him. So here he postpones the trial until Lysias, the commander in Jerusalem, can come down and, and testify. He gives Paul, he keeps him under arrest, if you would, but gives him great freedom while he's under arrest, even allowing all of his friends to come and minister to him. So this will be put off for a while. And we're going to see that Paul, as we mentioned before last time, we'll see in a moment, Paul is going to remain here now for two years in Caesarea. During that time, we see now in verse 24, but some days later, Felix arrived with Drusilla, his wife, who was a Jewess, and sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. Verse 25, but as he was discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix became frightened and said, go away for the present, and when I find time, I will summon you. At the same time, too, he was hoping that money would be given to him by Paul. Therefore, he, was, he also used to send for him quite often and converse with him. But after two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus and wishing to do the Jews a favor. Felix left Paul in prison. In verses 24 and 25, we have a fascinating account of Another meeting now with Felix, who now has his wife Drusilla with him, and Paul. He's not on trial here. The Jewish, those that are bringing charges against him, are not present. It's just the three of them, perhaps some other onlookers. But it says that, that, that he actually called him. He had a knowledge of the way. Felix understood the, this Christianity. He understood some basic things about it because, again, it is spreading throughout the region. But he wanted to know more. So he, with his wife, calls him. Now, we've looked a little bit at Felix, and just as a little bit of a reminder, he is governor of the area of Judea here. But as I mentioned earlier, absolutely despises the Jewish people as a whole, and they can't stand him. He has put down even minor uprisings with an extremely heavy hand, even having many, many Jews executed in his reign. To, ruling with an iron fist. We mentioned last time, too, that he, he didn't have a whole lot of friends, but he had one very powerful friend, and that is Caesar. The Caesar at this time, Claudius, they grew up together as kids. Claudius's mom was actually the owner of Felix's mom. Felix's mom was her slave. So they grew up together, and later on then, when Claudius came to power, he gave Felix and Felix's brother Paulus, their freedom and put them in charge of these, these different areas. So Felix now governing over Judea. According to Tacticus, who was a senator and a historian at the time, Felix ruled without any fear of Rome. Again, he's connected to the, the, the emperor. So he didn't have any fear of any repercussions coming against him. But he also said this, and I quote, Antonius Felix practiced every kind of cruelty and lust, wielding the power of a king with the instincts of a slave. 
extremely immoral, ungodly man. Now, Drusilla, his wife, we know quite a bit about her from extra-biblical accounts. She, uh, Josephus refers to her as the most beautiful woman in the land. And when she was 13 years old, she was given in marriage to King Azizus of Amisa after he agreed to convert to Judaism. At the age of 16, Felix sees her and steals her away from her husband. And so now they are, and takes her as his wife. And now she's about 20, 19, 20 years old at the time that this is happening. Very ungodly woman and, and everything from all, all accounts. Now, I say all of that to set this up because it is so important that we see the heart of Paul in the exchange that goes on here. Because understand, if Paul plays his cards right, his accusers aren't there. He plays his cards right here. He might even get freedom. But you see, Paul could care less about his temporary earthly freedom. He is far more concerned with their eternal freedom. He, is, he, he could care less about himself. He is passionately caring for them. Again, understanding who he is accountable to, that he is a prisoner for Christ. See the heart of Paul. Paul loves Felix and Drusilla enough to tell them the truth, to tell them the whole truth. We see the Holy Spirit at work in these two verses. First of all, the Holy Spirit at work in Paul. Paul, in what he is explaining and what he is sharing with Felix and Drusilla here. Understand again, too, the heart of Paul and where he stood in all of this. Remember back in Acts 20, 24, when Paul said, none of these things move me, nor do I consider my life dear to myself, that I might finish my race with joy, the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus. And then he says this, this is the ministry, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. He understood that that's all that matters in my life is to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. We see the Holy Spirit at work in Paul as Jesus promised that would take place with Paul and with you and I as believers. Paul, Jesus says in Luke 21, after explaining to them that there will come a day when, the, when the, your enemies will grab a hold of it, you will, could stand before kings and rulers, Jesus says it will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. So that make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourself, for I will give you utterance and wisdom which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. Jesus said, when you come to those situations and I put you in those, it's an opportunity for you to testify about me and I will tell you what to say. He explains in Mark chapter 13 that it's the Holy Spirit in us giving us words to say. No doubt that is taking place here as Paul shares the gospel of grace with Felix and Drusilla. And there's valuable things we need to understand in this, guys. All of us here today. The gospel of grace. The gospel of grace, again, caring enough to share the whole truth. And the whole truth has two elements. First, the inconvenient truth. Paul speaks to them of righteousness self-control, and judgment to come. The inconvenient truth is that the standard that we will all be measured by is absolute, complete, 
perfect righteousness. And not our definition of righteousness, God's definition of righteousness. What he declares in his word. Interesting, this word righteousness, the root in the Greek, actually deals with justice and punishment. Righteous, being standing before, righteous, blameless. And God has placed it in the heart of every man and woman, the difference between right and wrong. We all know it. We know the difference between right and wrong. It's inherently given to each of us. Again, we talked of conscience last time. But God also clearly in his word lays out what is, what is sin. Righteousness. He says very clearly, Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Period. We call as a society that it's okay to, to do all of these things, to, to worship these things, to place these other things, in, you know, to go after and chase after all these other things. God says anything placed above him is idolatry and it is unrighteous, period. We say, well, it's just, it's just a party. Oh, I just get drunk every once in a while. I just, you know, all this kind of stuff. It's just, it just makes me feel good. It's okay, the drugs or whatever. God says it's unrighteous, period. We can call it whatever we want. Lifestyle choices, alternate lifestyle choices, whatever. Fornication, adultery, homosexuality, sexual sin, unrighteous, period. That's what God's word says. And that is the standard. It's, we're not, and we're not graded on a curve. It's not, well, we're, well, at least I didn't kill anybody, so at least I'm above that. No, it says, very cleanly, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Guys, that is the inconvenient truth. The other inconvenient truth is God is all, we are all accountable for our actions. Many people will say, well, I was born that way. Well, let me let you in on a secret. Every single one of us was born with a sin nature. I don't care what your particular sin is. We've all, we're all born with a sin nature. Our flesh desires to go after things that God says we are not to. And self-control is that, is that putting to death mastery over those sinful fleshly appetites. The world says, chase after it. Oh, you were born that way. Go, go right ahead. God says it's unrighteous and you will be accountable for your decisions. That is the inconvenient truth. The inconvenient truth is also there will be a day of judgment that is coming where everyone will have to answer. John records it for us in Revelation chapter 20 as Jesus showed him this into the future. And I'm just going to read a few verses. Revelation 20, 11 through 15 says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whom, presence, whose, whom his presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead 
the great and the small standing before the throne and the books were opened and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the, the things that were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. The death and Hades were then thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown in the lake of fire. As the inconvenient truth is, there is a day of judgment coming for everyone. Jesus sits on the throne completely holy, absolutely righteous, totally just. He cannot, he cannot, being just, turn away from sin and pretend it never happened. The dead, speaking of here in Revelation 20, means those that have never been born again. If you are born again here today, you are alive. And we will live forever. But the dead speaking of here are those that knew this, that, that had that opportunity, those that rejected the gift of, of eternal life, that are not born again. And they will face this judgment. The books will then be opened. Every thought, every word, every deed judged. And then again, thrown into the lake of fire. It says, don't be deceived. That means you can convince yourself you're okay. Deception means that you can buy it hook, line, and sinker and think you're all right. Don't be deceived. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Jesus said on that day, many will say to him, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we do all sorts of great things in your name? And Jesus will say, depart from me. I never knew you. It's not about all of that. It is about what did you do with me? Did you make me Lord of your life? Guys, that's the inconvenient truth. The great thing is the other side, the, the whole truth also has the inconceivable truth. Righteousness. All of our righteousness is as filthy rags. There is nothing that we can do on our own to fix this problem. But, but God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. How does that work if the, if the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Well, it tells us that he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's a gift. It's not our righteousness. Our righteousness is as filthy rags. But Isaiah 61 speaks of the robe of righteousness that is placed on us as believers when we place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. His righteousness clothes us. We don't stand before him in our filthy rags. We stand before him in his glorious robe that he puts on us. That's the inconceivable truth. It's not our righteousness. It's his freely given. Self-control. 
The inconceivable truth is, guys, on our own, we can't control ourselves. But the power of the Holy Spirit in us, when we become believers, it tells us one of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control. Peter tells us in 2 Peter chapter 1 that everything has been given to us that is necessary for life and godliness, including, as he goes down the list, self-control. We have it in Jesus. We can live a life that is pleasing to God in his power, clothed in his righteousness. Judgment. Because of all of that, we stand before him blameless. He's no longer our judge. He's our advocate. He stands alongside us. That's the inconceivable truth. The sad part of our story that we see today is the work of the Holy Spirit that Jesus said will come where he will, he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and the judgment to come. He does that with Felix. We see Felix hears this truth, no doubt Drusilla as well. And it says that he trembles. He, he is fearful when he hears this, but he does not respond. He says, I'll, I'll, I'll call for you another time. The New King James, if you have that, it says, at a convenient time. And as we close here this morning, if you are here today and you have never taken that step to trust in the Lord Jesus, fully, completely, giving your life to him, there is no more convenient time than right now. Isaiah 55 says, call upon God while he is near. Forsake your wicked ways and he will abundantly pardon you. But you have to turn. That's what repentance is. You have to turn from your sin. You have to turn to Jesus and receive that free gift. Don't put it off. Don't, don't push this away. I, I beg you this morning, please respond to the Holy Spirit that I know he is working in your heart right now. But you have to respond. You have the choice, just as Felix did. You can receive it or you can reject it. You're not promised another day. Don't say, I'll do this at a more convenient time. Later. You're not guaranteed one more breath. For the rest of us, our call is to share the gospel of grace. The truth, the whole truth. Do we love our friends, our family enough to tell them the inconvenient truth and the inconceivable truth? Both are necessary. They need to understand how to be saved, but they need to understand that they need to be saved. That's our commission. That's what's been given to us. So I want to pray right now, and then, like I said, I want to share a little bit with you about my trip that John and I had. But when we're done, we're going to have a time of worship. And I want to invite any one of you that are here today that the Holy Spirit's working on you, whether it's to come to Jesus for the first time, come back to Jesus, whatever it is the Holy Spirit's working on you, do not leave and look for a more convenient time. Would you please come forward while we're worshiping? We'll have pastors and elders up front here. We'd love that opportunity to pray with you. Would you please stand with me? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we come to you today and we are in awe again of you. For this, 
inconceivable truth, this thing that it does, it does, we can't wrap our minds around it, Lord Jesus, but we embrace it completely, that you took our place. You took the judgment that was due us. You took our sin and have given us your robe of righteousness. God, we want to walk in a way, in a manner worthy of that amazing gift. If you're here today and you have never taken that step to make Jesus Lord of your life, it is a matter simply of responding to the Holy Spirit in your heart right now. And you just go before him humbly right now and pray along these lines to say, God, I am a sinner. I know that my life and my lifestyle has not been pleasing to you. I've demonstrated anything but self-control. But I believe what I hear. I need a savior in Jesus. I believe you're that savior. I believe you died for me. I believe you're the only way. So please come into my life right now. Come into my heart. Forgive me of my sin. Wash me clean. Give me eternal life. Clothe me in your righteousness. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. Well, you can be seated. I'll like to go through with you, share with you about the trip that John and I went on. We, we left, interestingly enough, um, on a Tuesday and we flew over there and we were supposed to have a short little layover in, in Hong Kong before we caught our next flight onto Yangon. And it turned out to be a little longer than we anticipated since we missed our flight. And uh, interestingly enough, God uses, used that to totally bless us with a day of rest that we needed, not knowing what was going to be ahead of us the next few days. Um, but we also saw God work in amazing ways through that. We, we, get, we, we, found, we discovered we had missed our flight, so we go to the counter, and the, the lady said, well, I'm sorry, sir, but you, there, we only fly to Yangon once a day, and the flight tomorrow is overbooked. So we can put you on the flight in two days. And we're like, um, well, our connection there will have left by then. We really need, and she's like, well, I'm, I'm sorry, sir. There's not a whole lot I can do for you. Um, it, they were really pleasant. We, we really actually had a great opportunity to, to share with them while we were there. But anyway, we get on standby for the next day, booking a flight for two days. God worked in amazing ways to get us on the flight the next day, to get us on, on to Yangon and even in miraculously doing that. But so we land there in, in Yangon, and, and almost immediately we get into a van and we begin our 30-hour drive to our first stop in Hakka. And I think our first slide, I just wanted to show you the nice wide freeways that we got to drive on. Uh, it was 30 hours of bumpy, bouncy, um, windy, the last six hours winding up and down these canyons that were absolutely just straight off, no, no guardrail. There were spots that were wider than this, but there were spots that were narrower than this too. Absolutely unbelievable scenery. The beauty that is in this country in these spots is just unreal. I grew up in Colorado, and I saw some, some of the most beautiful scenery. I believe one more picture, yeah, with that. So we end up next. I'm sure we got the right, 
We end up now, this is in Hakka, which is winding all the way through this mountainous region. We end up in this rather large city that is here. There's several churches in Hakka. This is one of them. This is the one where we were, to, we were gonna get the opportunity to minister for the next several days. Um, Sunday morning is, I believe, our first picture here. Yeah, the church here filled on Sunday morning full of believers. The worship was awesome. We're going to get a taste of that in a, in a little bit. Sunday evening, here's John. Uh, we had service in Sunday morning, Sunday evening. We had service when, Monday and Tuesday evening as well as then on Monday and Tuesday sharing with local pastors and leaders to encourage them. But John here with Pastor Kung, who was our translator, they have no heat. And when we were there, it was in the evenings would be in the high 30s, daytime highs around 50. So it was really cold. So what they, you do, we get in the house and we just gather around these little charcoal pots and, um, and keep ourselves warm. You see in the, John there on the left, in the middle, this is Philip. He's the one who uh, runs the school, the Bible school that we went out and spent most of our, we spent most of our time with Philip as he led us around. And then to the right, this young man, his name is Timothy, aptly named. His, he owns two things. He owns a backpack and a motorcycle. And he goes town to town, village to village, sharing the gospel. This guy is absolutely amazing. Remember Timothy and pray for him. He is an absolute evangelist out there living completely, totally 100% for the Lord. Just a delight to be around him. This is the group as we're getting ready to leave some of the other pastors from the area that had traveled a little distance. The one waving there, his name is Paul if you'd keep him in your prayers. The other pastor that was doing the translating for us, Pastor Kung, is actually taking three years off to translate the Bible into another dialect. Paul is now taking over the senior pastor roles for the church and um, has been an assistant pastor for several years, now stepping in as senior pastor, so we had a lot to talk about and uh, just be praying for them in that. But we had a, just a very blessed time in Hakka. Well, then we started our journey back this was in Falam, which is a town a little ways away on our way back. This is actually Philip's hometown. Philip's mother is in the red sweatshirt and his sister in the blue sweatshirt there. Both are widows. Both um, poor would be a horrible understatement, uh, the conditions that they live in. But you can see the joy. Would you go back just real quick if we can? The joy on her face never comes off. She is just a, a, a woman who loves the Lord, a prayer warrior. The joy of the Lord in that house was amazing. And we see the, the home here, the conditions that they lived in. The next slide. This was the home Philip grew up in. Um, a couple of years ago, a landslide came through and the house actually dropped a couple of feet. What you don't see is that little crack that is there. That's a straight off cliff. Those four by four posts that are there are like 25, 30 feet long that, that go down to the ground. And um, so I, I, I confess, I don't know about John, but walking in that house, I was a little nervous. But uh, we, spent, we spent a couple hours there and just totally blessed uh, to spend some time with Philip's mother. Uh, next, uh, these are a couple of, of Philip's nieces. Uh, just, again, absolutely nothing. Other, she's got, probably got every bit of clothing she owns on because, again, it's pretty cold. Notice she doesn't have any shoes, but just lighting up with her smile. Just beautiful. Uh, next. Some more scenery then the next day as we begin to head back down the mountain, met up with this couple, and then the next slide is an, another pastor from 
from the area. I got an opportunity to pray for them while we waited for them to clear debris off of the road as we're heading back. Uh, Next, we got back down then to Yangon, which is kind of our hub where we went out of, and we hooked up with this man. His name is Ralph. He's been a a missionary in China for 30 years, an amazing man of God, and he joined us for the the rest of our, our time together. We left then from Yangon and went up to Sitwe, which is a totally different region. Where we had been before was mountainous and largely Christian. Here, this is over towards the coast, and it is 99.9% Buddhist. And the Christians aren't physically persecuted here, but they are absolutely shunned, completely pushed away. In the villages that they are there trying to share the gospel, closed doors, the more, when they find out you're a Christian, you are completely ostracized. As a matter of fact, many villages where we would go, if they knew you were a Christian, they wouldn't even let you into the village. But this particular village we were in for a couple of days, they have, as you can see here, boldly marked that they're, they're Christians. This is where they have, where they gather together. We had the opportunity to minister there for a couple of days, speaking to leaders, many of which got there by boat down the rivers. Um, there's no roads to get to where they are. So they travel by, by boat to get down there. Here's Philip leading worship before one of our sessions. Next, here's John sharing um, with the leaders during one of the sessions. Again, just a, an amazing group of believers. Here is one, and this John, there's several Johns, so it's easy to remember to, to be praying. John and his wife and one of their children, he is one of the leaders there in that particular village where we, where we met. And he has a heart. Again, all of his neighbors now know he's a Christian, so his neighbors want nothing to do with him. The, the, the community wants, but he and his wife have a heart for the orphans of Rakeen State and believe that that is what God is calling them to do, to show the love of Christ for the children that the Buddhist and, and all that do not want. And so be praying for that, that God might open the doors and, and bring that, that to fruition as a way to share the love of Christ. Here are a few of the other leaders that were there present. Um, again, just some, their, their passion for the Lord was, was just awesome. Here's an example of a home that is there. The poverty there um, is, is everywhere. Many of the things that we take so for granted, we are so blessed here. Um, to spend two weeks there just was such an eye-opening experience. Here we were leaving. They lined up to shake our hands and to give us hugs and a lot of tears as, we are, as we're leaving. And I took this picture. Um, <laughs> took a picture of them taking pictures of us. Um, they, uh, one of the things with that that they, they, every one of them wanted to take a picture with us. And one of them shared with John that we're the first Americans that they'd ever seen. And what breaks my heart is what he said next. He said, you know, we've always heard of America, but up until today, we didn't think any of you cared. And again, we are so blessed here. So blessed, not only physically with all of the things that, that they, they have, the things that we take for granted, but so blessed that we have each other, that we have, you know, we have this freedom that, you know, it, and when we share, we might get pushed away, but not ostracized, not, not anything like they face. And they were so discouraged, but what a blessing that God allowed us to be used by him to encourage them over a couple of days. 
And one of the things that I, the questions that we, we opened it up to kind of questions and answers at the end, and one of them was, when are you coming back? And I, I, I asked if I could respond to that, and, and I said, you know, I don't know. If, if God will open that door, I would love to come back again. Um, Philip said, well, I'll, I can come back, you know, maybe even later this year. But I said, you know what? The Bible says don't forsake gathering together. I can promise you we'll be praying for you, but you need to gather together here and encourage each other. So pray for that, that they would, they would be able to encourage one another, that there would be others that would go. But that they are, they, the ground that they are plowing is so hard, but God has placed them there. John, the one that I showed you, the one who has the heart for the orphans, he comes from the Chin State where it's largely Christian. He could have stayed there. God could have used him there, but he felt called to go here, bring his family to Rakhin State. And to go through all of this. And, and he has no desire to leave. He, has, he keeps praying, God, how do you want to use us here? So it's quite, it's quite a, an amazing experience. Well, this is now back in, in Yangon. And this is at the Bible school. These are young men and women that are being raised up and trained to go out into the mission field there in Myanmar. The, men on, the guys on one side, the gals on the other here. Um. What do we have? Okay, and then we finished. This, this, is, this is my last day there. John stayed on for another few days through graduation because they had a class of the students graduating. But we, we had an opportunity then this afternoon to share with some other local leaders in the area. Um, we had several of those conferences where we had the opportunity to just share and encourage them with the Word of God. The man translating in here, his name again is John. This is John Luai. Um, one thing that became apparent to John and I and Ralph while we were spending time with John and his wife here is that there is a call on this man uh, to, to do something great for the Lord Jesus and even perhaps even opening up uh, his home as a church. Um, so we're praying uh, for a lot. There's a lot of things to be praying for. Here's Philip then and his family um, on, as I was getting ready to go to the airport as just a few things to kind of close up my thoughts as coming back, there, uh, I came back with way more questions than I went with. And I would just ask that you pray with us as leaders. There are so many needs there, so many needs. And we need to pray that God would reveal to us very specifically what it is that he desires for us to do. How, how we can be used by him in that. There's a lot of opportunities, several things that I, again, I wasn't anticipating while we were there and opportunities that might be there for us. So be praying with us in that. A couple of the things that just struck me in this as we, as we went through this whole thing. Again, all of the things that we take for granted, the things that we are so blessed with, and it was, it was so easy to see when we're in and amongst the Christians, the joy in their lives, the joy that is, that is all the way completely through them. They have nothing, but they have everything. And it is so easy to see. When we were in the area, the Buddhist area, they put on a face, but you can see right behind it that there's nothing there. There's no joy. But the Christians, oh, 
just joy, joy, joy. And the other thing that, that just absolutely, I guess, just really got a hold of me, and it was from that first Sunday when we were, we were up in front, and I have to admit, it was very uncomfortable. They had the, the way the church was set up is that the pastors and the elders sat on chairs <laughs> up on the stage, and I was very uncomfortable doing that. But I'll tell you, God had me there for a reason, because as we were continuing to go through the, the worship there, it just, I, I was just blown away after all I had witnessed and seen to this point that they, though culturally, there is nothing similar. The way that they live, nothing similar to this. But when we gather together like that, everything's the same. Just like we talked about earlier, Paul, <laughs> I serve the God of our fathers. So do they, so do we. I, I believe the word of God. So do they, so do we. And we have hope because of the resurrection. So do they, so do we. It's just overwhelmed by that. And as we now uh, spend a, a little time in worship, I want to ask you to do this because I, while this was going on, I had a chance to record. I, gr I grabbed my iPad as soon as it started happening because all of a sudden, they're, they're worshiping in this language. I don't understand anything. And then all of a sudden, they started singing and I understood what they were singing. <laughs> they weren't singing in English. They were singing the universal word for praise the Lord, which is hallelujah. And as they did, a tear starts streaming down my face. I started recording, and I, start, I envisioned this moment right now where we join together with them and worship the Lord together. So would you stand? And if we have the video ready, would you cue that? And let's worship together. Oh, 